My name is Angie Brown and you are listening to the Being Luminary podcast, the podcast where I get into all things diversity, equity and inclusion with luminary guests, a sprinkling of coaching, advice, guidance and the inspiration for you to do things differently in your organisation. If you want to create a luminary place to work, a luminary experience for your clients, your teams, your communities, If you are committed to overleaping compliance and heading straight for luminary approaches to DEI, you are in the right place. You are listening to the Being Luminary podcast, episode number 63. Welcome back to the Being Luminary podcast. I am delighted to be speaking to a a friend, a client for the last while or so, and a school leader. I know this conversation is going to be really, really interesting, and I'm looking forward to it. But I'm going to ask my guest to introduce herself to the podcast um, before we get going. So welcome. Welcome. Um, I'm Carla Whelan, and I'm currently an executive director at March's Academy Trust, but I'm about to go on a huge adventure, um, becoming a CEO of Empower Trust in Shropshire. Mm. So good to have you here, Carla. Really looking forward to this conversation. And thank you for agreeing to come on the podcast. Now, one of the things that I want to say before we get started is um, that you are you're a school leader, but you're you're kind of in the time that I've known you, you've sort of moved from executive role, executive headship, was it kind of role? And then yeah. into yeah, so so um, extensive in in my senior leadership roles, head teacher roles, mm. and recently over the last three years into system leadership, and now about yeah to go into a CEO role. Yeah, and before we dive into talking about you, could you tell us a bit more about the trust that you are about to go into? I'm very excited. Um, it is a trust of eight primary schools currently. Um, what I really love about the trust, um, one of the reasons why I applied for the role there is it's about um, collaboration. The heads are the exec team um, and they very much contribute authentically to the vision mm. and the decision making within the trust, which is, you know, a really important part of, of what I want to be as a leader. Um, it's exciting. It's It's got a lot of energy in the mm. trust. There's a lot of really capable leaders that want to continue to grow they love reading Mm. which really fits in with me because I love a good book yeah um so we've already shared books and titles and different things so yeah it's it's really an energizing trust that I'm I'm very much um looking forward to working with the the groups of leaders that I've got you know available at the trust and I haven't yet unfortunately got to meet um you know other people within the schools yet I've I've focused on this half term meeting with the heads but I've heard from the heads about the staff that they have within their schools. And again, you know, um, a great energetic bunch that, um, you know, really want to get it right for young people. Mm. So, mm. yeah, very exciting times. Brilliant. OK, and we'll probably hear a bit more about um, some of your plans for the trust a bit later. But just I just want to start by saying what an inspiring um, structure to have the heads as the exec team as well. I don't think I've ever heard that before. Um, maybe I have, but it seems like it's kind of a rare structure. It is. I mean, I, I've not. I've done a lot of research on trusts over over the last four years, and um, yeah, it's it's quite unique in in mm. the sense of there's normally an exec team, mm. and then there's a heads group, and and in a lot of trusts, the heads group have a voice mm. within decision making. 
Um, but to actually have the exec team formed by the heads is a, a way that I've not seen work before, but very energized by it. And I love the fact that, you know, that they are, it's their trust. Yeah. Yeah. It belongs to them. And, and I really do feel passionate about the authenticity of that. So, so yeah, exciting. Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. Let's find out a bit more about you then. So um, I always ask my guests to tell us a bit about their origin story and to talk to us a bit just to get started on how diversity, equity or inclusion topics maybe arose uh, or manifested themselves in your origin story. So what can you tell us, Carla, about your your early starts? I think um, there's, there's personal parts of it, isn't there, in the sense of um, I had a very interesting experience in education myself. Um, moments of of real sense of exclusion um, and not really being able to identify the type of learner that I was. So finding learning a struggle. So that part obviously um, comes to the table. And then also, um, I remember having um, a disabled friend when I was um, in my primary school. And it was the first time that I'd sort of come across somebody that had to you know to do things in different ways and adapt and adjust and I became very very um, committed I helped in every way that I possibly could knowing that I was an able-bodied person and what could I do to sort of make sure that um, that you know life wasn't had didn't have too many barriers for him and that was probably the first experience I remember of of recognizing that um, people have to sometimes live differently and some people have different barriers and life wasn't the same as it my life was you know I think at a small at a young age you often think that everybody exists in the same way as you do you know and everyone has the same opportunities mm. as you do um and that I remember that to be my first realization really that that wasn't the case mm. and I remember feeling that's that real strong sense of I want to make sure that I, I help remove the barriers. Mm. I think that's probably my first experience. And then it just has really grown since then of like, you know, just really wanting to be a person that leaves a legacy of making sure that um, I, I contribute to positive experiences for everybody. Mm. And so really unpicking what the adjustments and adaptions need to look like in order to get that. So, mm. So I remember that being a real influence. I then remember going to secondary school and having um, barriers of my own, you know, and and really feeling um, that I didn't fit in for many different reasons and having lots of different things happen to me because of that. Um, And then having to look at my own self and what adjustments and adaptions and, and what sort of mindset I needed to develop in me to be able to to go forward and, and be successful in life. So, you know, learning really how I needed to be and what I needed to do in terms of self-talk and self-training in order to, to make sure that it didn't inhibit, you know, my, my success and inhibit mm. me doing the things that I wanted to do. So, mm. yeah, those, those are the first things that come to mind, really. Mm. That sounds like um, I have a lot of guests on the podcast who say that they had a really difficult time at school often. It's just so interesting that school leaders often say, yeah, I really didn't enjoy school at all. And it's like we go back to recreate the kind of school that we would have wanted to go to in order that we could, you know, could have fit in maybe. Um, But but what what sorts of what sort of stands out from what you've said is the 
the fact that you felt it was your responsibility to create the kind of mindset or to work out the tools that were needed in order that you could make school work for you. Do you think that there were or would have been adjustments that the school should have anticipated or done on your behalf? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I felt really let down in secondary. Um, and I met this incredible teacher at, when I was doing my A-levels who, you know, taught me something really simple, mind mapping, taught me mm. I was a visual learner, you know, which when you um, when you put that into context today, it's a really simple thing. You know, mm. we all know about different learning styles and different ways of working. I didn't at 14 and 15. Um, and nobody gave me a direction or a pathway with that. Um, and so I was left to feel lots of emotions around that, you know, to the point where I felt like really I wasn't an intelligent person. Mm. I really didn't feel um, that I was good at learning and that um, that learning really wasn't something that I could do well. Mm. And then I went to I, I managed to get my GCSEs and go on to do A-levels. And then I met this incredible teacher who, again, like I say, taught me about visual learning. And all of a sudden there was like a light bulb go off. Um, and I thought it goes in. It goes in by by making my maps and putting it visually. I had these big sheets of paper and, you know, my uni walls were, you know, always covered in, in sort of patterns and different things. But it, it helped me to be able to process things. And all of a sudden I thought, I can learn. I am a good. Mm. I am. I am intelligent. You know. Oh my gosh. You know. This is this is new concept for me. So you know. Yeah. I feel really let down then that nobody identified that for me at secondary school. And most of the teaching that I received at secondary school was was very uh, much throw a textbook at you, mm. read page twenty seven, answer the questions on twenty eight, and you had an hour of lesson of that, and then you transitioned to another class, and you had another hour of that. So the whole day for me became a real struggle of of trying to get things in my head, but not actually dealing with it in the right way that I I can't, I don't find it easy to read and process things straight away. Mm -hmm. I need to read and make notes, read and mind map, but Mm -hmm. nobody taught me that part of the building block. Yeah. And so, yeah, and, 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 you know, like you say, a lot of educational people go into education because they've had experiences themselves. For me, that was a fundamental part of like, I want to make sure that learning looks different for mm. young people. Mm. How can I do that? Well, I can, I can go and be a teacher. Mm. So, you know, yeah, it was a real element to why I went into this profession in the first mm. place. Mm. I didn't want anyone to feel the way that I felt. Mm. Yeah. And and you're describing what I, one of my second questions is, when have you been made to feel like an insider or an outsider? It sounds like it's, that sounds like an incredibly isolating position to be in when you feel like at least you're the one that doesn't quite, isn't yeah. quite able to do it in that way. What What was the experience? Do you remember your experience of primary or secondary school of feeling as though the way that you learned made you insider or outsider? You know, were there other people who learned similarly to you or did it feel like you were one of a few I didn't feel connected at secondary at all mm. and in my primary years I mean I I do have a giggle with people sometimes because my primary years I was actually um I, I actually got into trouble a lot mm. in my primary school I was a bit of a class clown and I'm looking back really um it was a strategy mm. you know I didn't know at the time and you know my parents never sort of like figured it out but mm. 
it was a strategy for me to to distract you know from how I potentially was feeling and then at secondary school um I just tended to keep to a very small group of friends and um I wasn't quiet I I I, you know I had fun and I had lots of um great experiences but I never felt a cool kid never felt Mm. one of those cool kids and I I always wanted to be a cool kid because that's an aspiration isn't it as a teenager and when I meet up with um, friends that um, I wasn't necessarily friends at school, but we've become friends, we've met up at reunions and we've we've discussed things and we've become close over the years. You know, um, their perception of me was very different to my perception of me mm. at secondary school, which is quite interesting as well, um, because I didn't feel connected. But a lot of friends that I felt were the cool people at school always said, oh, I, you know, I really... I wanted to be like you, Cara, and, you know, what? You know, I really never felt that at school. But I suppose their perspective was I was, you know, um, I got on with things. I was extremely, um, they they felt that I was honest and authentic. And a lot Mm. of the time friendships were quite fickle um, at school. And they felt that I was like a genuinely um, compassionate person. I didn't see it like that. I felt I was quite quiet and disconnected. Mm. And I just kept myself to myself because I didn't want to get involved in dramas. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it, it, I felt I didn't belong and wasn't connected at secondary. Mm. And I felt that I wasn't really noticed. Mm. But in later years, I found out that I was. And I think that's quite an interesting concept as well. Mm. So what did you, how did you do at the end of that? So that five years of not feeling particularly connected, sorry to talk about outcomes like I never talk about them but I'm really curious <laughs> about how you how you fared during that period well I mean if you compare it to today's grades I I, I didn't do overly well I mean I got five GCSEs um above C which mm. got me to do A levels I yeah. had to get five GCSEs above C's to get A levels and those yeah. were A's they were A's and B's yeah um, with, with one C um, and then I got a few that at D, so yeah. That, yeah. that you wouldn't class necessarily in, in my day as, as being, you know, um, I suppose, well, I didn't feel it was worthwhile. If you got anything yeah. like OC, I was made to feel it wasn't worthwhile. Yeah. You know, when you think about, I mean, my daughter, you know, got nine GCSEs um, mm. that were all sort of above five, which was the equivalent, isn't it? Mm. Um, and I think that she felt anything less than that wouldn't have been wouldn't have been good enough you know mm. um so I suppose my five at the time was good enough to get mm. me to where I needed to go and I always remember um my dad saying to me sweetheart just just jump the hurdles mm. don't try and and elevate yourself a meter above the hurdles mm. just jump the hurdles to get to where you next need to go mm. and that was for me quite a key part because I'd always felt like I had to do the best mm-hmm. and five was enough. It got mm-hmm. me to do my A-levels, mm-hmm. so I got those. But, yeah, I mean, I do, and and this is um, quite strange because I do sometimes still feel a little bit of um, embarrassment when mm-hmm. I talk about that because I think when you're in education as a school leader, everyone sees you as a straight-A student. Mm-hmm. And so I never really talk about my outcomes because I'm not that straight-A student. Yeah. Isn't it interesting? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, no, but but I do I do feel um I excelled when I got into the classroom. Yeah. And I always remember my mom saying to me, You see, you jumped the hurdles to get to where you really needed to be, Carla, where you could excel 
and and be your very best self. Yeah. And when I look back, I think, yeah, when I got into the classroom, that was probably my first sense of belonging. Mm. You mean when you started teaching? When I first started teaching. Yeah. Yeah. When I first started teaching, I, I got that that feeling of like, I'm I'm good at this. Yeah. Yeah. And I can get young people yeah. where I need them to be. Yeah. I, I can do this well. And I, I think probably that's the first moment where I felt I'm I'm in a place where I belong to be mm. and I can I can really truly be my very best version of myself. Mm. But up until that point, I, I just felt it was a struggle, really, mm. that. What you're saying just really interests me because I think we're of a similar age. So when I was at school, the acquisition of nine C above or whatever it was, you know, or 12, 10, whatever it was, wasn't the goal. The goal was what do you need to get to, to do your A-levels? And so also there's been something that has shifted around what excellence looks like or what you know and and I think about young people and the pressure that they put themselves under to get 9 10 11 12 of them that you know above what we would have said was a C and that's a really different state frame of mind to the one I I mean I remember you know going off to London for a jaunt breaking my arm just before my GCSEs kind of thinking well I've got English in the bag so (laughs) you know and I wasn't work shy so I think there's something that's also shifted in our time around how people see outcomes yeah definitely I think the outcome shift is significant you know I mean I I remember having a really difficult time with my daughter I mean she's 21 this year when she was doing her her GCSEs though you know she had this intense pressure that Mm. basically anything other than nine a stars Mm was not going to be good enough yeah you know and and I you know I had to sort of have that conversation with her of like it's probably very unlikely that you'll get that sweetheart because it's is it possible for you know for a large majority of young learners with all the other things that are going on in their lives as well and actually Mm. having a life at the same time Mm. so but she'd put this immense pressure on on herself you know um and she she did you know she she did well and she Mm. got to do her a levels and she did well with those and she's now at university she jumped the hurdles but Mm. yeah she I remember having many nights where you know she just she just felt that huge pressure Mm. well I I did as well Mm. you know um I I did feel that but I, I feel that's connected to me never feeling like I'm achieving at school yeah until doing my A-levels yeah and then I then that shifted for me yeah and it's interesting that you know you said school leaders probably feel that they should be A-star students all the way through and yet we're also educating young people that anyone can be anything so actually it shouldn't matter if you get five of them or 12 of them, you should still be able to find a way yeah. to become a teacher and then a school leader. So there's a funny thing happening there, isn't there? And I, and I always remember, I went to Leon uh, years ago, the British Council used to do an immersion course where mm. um, you go to Leon and you learn French mm. uh, for a week. And one of the teachers at school wanted to go on it. And I was deputy at the time. Mm. And she was like, oh, but I don't want to go on my own. So I was like, okay, well, I don't know much French, but I'll come with you. And I remember for the whole week feeling just just awful because Mm. I couldn't understand what was going on around me. My French was very limited. 
And um, I just, you know, I remember saying to the teacher, do you know what? I'm having a real experience of what it feels like to be a learner that struggles Mm. this week. Mm. And I do think that because of my experiences and because of, of my feeling around learning, that made me excel in the classroom as a teacher because mm. I really could understand how to do the building blocks yeah. of learning, yeah. you know, and break things down and, and make sure that understanding was there. Mm. I think that teachers, the teachers that I've met that have not struggled at school and that have been, um, you know, those learners that have flown through have found that journey of being able to break learning down harder. So mm. I think it's probably, I mean, I wouldn't have said this at the time when I was a youngster, but, mm. you know, um, I think it probably helped mm. me finally into my profession yes. um, more than more than disadvantaged me. But yeah, yeah I yeah. wouldn't have felt that during the struggle. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about the journey from, from teacher to leader to head? How, how, what did that look like for you? Yeah. So I finished university and went down to London um, with my friends from uni. We all um, got jobs down in, in East London, which was a great experience. I'm so glad I had that because, um, again, the school that I worked at was 950 pupils um, down in East London. A real diversity, a real diversity that I wouldn't have achieved coming back to Shropshire mm. and um, and I'm really really grateful for that because it helped me to really understand about how learners with different languages learn mm. um, and, and the things that you have to do to to support that so did four years there um, and then I got married and and I married a sailor so I had to move down to Plymouth where he was based mm. which again was really interesting part of my process because I moved from from having that diversity in East London and really learning from that. Um, And also because London's very up on new initiatives. So Mm -hmm. we were trialing things and being Mm -hmm. part of pilots. Moving down to Plymouth, again, I was in a um, fundamentally white school. Mm. Um, So again, complete contrast. And and again, not trying new initiatives. So just starting things that I've been working on for like four years. So that was, again, you know, a real learning experience of like, how can I support the school without taking over and, you know, saying, oh, well, I've done this for four years. So let let me do it sort of thing. So learning really how to be humble with leadership and how to support Mm. in a more coaching way um, Mm. and and how to influence in in lots of different ways with the experience that that you have. But I always remember I placed my last class photo up in my classroom in Plymouth. Mm. And of course, um, a, a large majority of the young people in my East London school wore saris and different things mm. like that. And I always remember one of the children coming up to me and saying, "Why, why have they, why have they all got their pajamas on?" And and mm. you know, and they had no concept mm. at all of of you know the culture and and why they were dressed in that way. Mm. Um, which was really really interesting because I did a whole project on it and I connected mm. to my East London school to to mm. sort of give those it, it, that experience. And so I did, yeah, four years then at Plymouth um, and then moved back up to, I got pregnant with my daughter and moved back up to Telford where I originate from because I wanted to be close to family. And I got an opportunity to work in a secondary school for two years mm. as head of inclusion. And so I was teaching what they classed as a mini school, mm-hmm. um, which again was really, really enlightening because um, I taught, obviously, because they have sets and streams at at secondary, um, and I was teaching what they deemed as the bottom set, Mm -hmm. you know, but an absolutely fantastic bunch of young people who Mm. really were misunderstood in the rest of the school. 
So again, you know, another part of my journey of like diversity, really, of like really understanding how to make sure that those learners felt successful. Yeah. But also how to change mindsets of other teachers yeah. who, you know, felt. I mean, I remember one teacher saying to me, "If I, if I had to come and do your job every day, Carla, I don't, I don't think I'd stay in teaching. I just mm. couldn't do it. It would just, it would just, oh, you mm. know, and feeling a real distaste for the work that I did. Mm. And I remember saying to them why don't you come down into my classroom and see these young people in my classroom? Mm. Because they were, you know, they were the young people that out on the playground and in the social areas were causing the problems when they went to other classrooms, because they did go for 40% of their other learning time in other classrooms. They would be the class that I'd always get called to. I know them well. (laughs) To sort out, you know, but they would never be like that for me. Yeah. And I always remember asking them why. And um, and they said, because, you know, you hear us and mm-hmm. and you speak to us like we're, we're real people. And, you know, it was as simple as that. Mm. So a real, yeah, real experience getting, mm. getting to see how also a young person changes during that year seven period. Yeah. You know, that yeah. secondary move does really make a difference in impact yeah. in life. And getting year seven right is, is quite fundamental, I think, in secondary. Yeah. Can I pick up on something that you said about that that group? Because um, there's a like a, there's so many things going through my head right now. So the first thing that the last thing that you just said is something that I hear a lot. People really don't like it when people say they would never be like that for me. And I, you know, when you're in a school and people and and I and I have a bit of a um, I have a bit of a question, I guess, around why people don't like to hear that because often it's true mm. yeah well people mm. yeah I'm, yeah, I'm curious what you, what you think about that because I, I too have taught the group of children who do 40% of their timetable elsewhere and then were with me the rest of the time or with our unit the rest of the time so yeah what do you what do you think about that okay well yeah that's a good one and it's a bit you know I'm going to give a Paul Dix back at you because it's when the adults change isn't it mm. and um, I truly believe you know we're the adults in that environment so we are the ones that should have the skill set to adapt and adjust to meet their needs and meet Mm. them where they're at Mm. and I think that um, if you do that and if you make a conscious effort to do that and you commit and you bring all of the other qualities of compassion and empathy into the table as well then you can find a connection with those young people Mm. and when you find that connection with those young people, you then get that learning experience. And it's, it's you know, that that Rita Ted talk, isn't it, from years ago, you know, mm, champion of yeah, children. Yeah. You know, it is, it's about that connection. And it's about, right, okay. And, and don't get me wrong, you know, the first couple of weeks with them was an absolute, you know, um, journey. Yeah. Oh, I love that euphemism. Journey. Yeah. It, it, you know, it, they were testing me. Yeah. They were finding out about me. They were wondering yeah. if they could trust me. They were giving me lots of opportunity to prove myself in mm. that classroom. Mm. But when we finally made that connection as a whole class and I worked out what strategies I needed to use to bring them all on board with me, then every time they came down to my classroom, I would get learners coming mm. into that classroom. Mm. and you know and yeah when that one person said to me you know oh if I had to do your job just come down to my classroom because I wanted them to see the connection I wanted them to to be really feeling and understand that if you get that connection right with young people 
then it happens that you you can you can work with them they will work with you they will learn they will be with you in that classroom and they will commit to that if you don't get that connection well that's when you get all the difficulties and the 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 behavior responses um and reactions that that you know some teachers get so so for me yeah they hate it because i think it's a reflection upon what maybe they're not connecting with mm-hmm. and a self reflection needed mm-hmm. in a sense mm-hmm. um and you know there there are those absolutely fantastic teachers aren't there that always self reflect continually looking mm-hmm. at themselves and reviewing themselves and always thinking what can i do better mm-hmm. and if i try every day to be better then i'm just i'm going to keep going with that journey and then there's those teachers that have a different viewpoint of i'm a teacher come into my classroom and give me respect and authority because I'm a teacher Mm. and automatically expect that. Mm. And I I don't think you ever had it, but I certainly don't think that since over the last three years, since 2020, I think that you have that less. It's been much more diluted with young people. Mm. You you have to connect and and almost earn the respect Mm. and the the relationship with those Mm. young people. That's really interesting. So because it, it sounds like what you're saying is actually they would never be like that for me, should apply for everybody. In a sense, we're all forming our own individual relationships Absolutely. with yeah. a group of young people. And it and it should look different as a consequence Absolutely. of what we bring to of ourselves to the relationship with with them. It's that word you relationship, isn't it? Yeah. You know, relationships, um, it's like that I don't I can't remember who said it but culture eats strategy for breakfast mm. that, that sort of mm. quote and it's mm. relationships eats strategy for breakfast mm. you know it's it's all about relationships and the culture mm. of belonging that sense of belonging that that you bring whether it's to your classroom as a school leader you get the opportunity to bring that to the whole school mm. as as a system leader as a CEO you get to bring that to the whole in, you know establishments and institute. So, but it is that that relationship. Um, the other thing that you said that I am interested in is the move from East London to Plymouth. I think we might be separated at birth, Carla. I <laughs> <laughs> I moved from London to uh, to Devon as a child, oh, wow. so it's slightly different. Um, but I but I really like what you said about having to develop a kind of humble leadership. And I think this is often really overlooked. And I say that because I often meet school leaders who are, you know, rightly, they're really frustrated. I'm in this area. They often say the school is entirely white. Leaders often say that to me. And I think, okay, that's a that's a proxy for there's no diversity when actually what we know is that there'll be lots of young people who are LGBTQ plus or who are uh, gender questioning or exploring yeah. there'll be people who are disabled in the school community there are, like there's a whole host of diversity other than ethnic diversity but they what they mean really is that it feels like there is a monoculture in their schools often even though that might not actually be the case and what they often bemoan is people just won't do things fast enough so they come with lots of initiatives they want to push forward they're really frustrated that where they are feels a bit parochial that you know there are no initiatives but I love what you say about humble leadership because there is also kind of corollary, corollary, corollary. I can say that four times and get it wrong. I'm not <laughs> going to edit that out. That when we push too hard or try and bring too many things, actually, we really turn people off and we don't help them move to 
to where we we want them we don't actually see them as they are and meet them as they are and celebrate that so can you just tell us a bit about some of the strategies that you used when you when you moved to Plymouth to bring people with you rather than to force people to 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 uh to be where you wanted them to be I think one of the key things I've really, really learned over the years is to listen to hear. Um, I think lots of people listen to reply. Yeah. And, and bring their own agenda to the table. And uh, and it is something that you have to work really hard at because everyone's got their own opinions and your brain works before everything else, doesn't it? So the minute somebody says something, you're forming your own opinions. But being really, really um, careful to, to always hear. And acknowledge um that that you know um lots of people come to the table with experience i love um david and i, I can't ever say his name did that did you did you did i did but he wrote um a book recently intelligent accountability and he talks um you know about believing that everyone is brilliant first mm. and then you know working with that and mm. and then adjusting and adapting to support as and when you needed it and i think it's a great philosophy so i think when i went to plymouth i sort of um i didn't go with the mindset of like oh i've worked in london so i know everything and i've been doing these pilots and you know so when they were sort of throwing on the table oh there's this thing i mean it was a national strategy so you know all those years ago when we brought the national strategy in and i remember sitting around a sort of staff meeting going right there's this new initiative called national strategy and straight away the sort of um you know the little person on my shoulder went oh it's not new you've been doing it for four years carla and it was a bit like Okay, put that one away. Yeah. Um, what can I then use from that that will help this school be able to implement it effectively? Um, because I know that we made masses of mistakes when we first implemented it down in London. Mm. And so I thought, well, that that's what I can bring to the table. So, so I started really with having um, you know conversations with the senior leaders to say, look, I've um, I've played around and explored with the national strategy down in London. Um, and, and learn a lot from it you know w- would you like me to share you know some, some of the things that we tried so I really sort of approached it in that way of like what can I share with you yeah that you can decide what is useful and what's not because you know I, I, I was a TLR at the time I was a middle leader so I didn't influence necessarily um, strategic decisions within the school but I was I was consciously aware that I'd got I'd got information that would perhaps they'd find useful so that was that was my approach that Mm. I had with is let me share with you what I know and what I've got and and you can then decide how much you want to explore it and use it and how much you want me involved in it basically Mm. um and and the head was was brilliant you know they were like do you know what actually be on be on the table and Mm. and and work with us strategically to sort of look at we can use your mistakes Mm. you know to to Mm. be to be um you know support for us so so yeah and it just evolved from there really but Mm. I try I went in with that approach really of like you know I I just want to share with you my experiences and expertise and then work with you on on how how that can help you because it's Plymouth it's not London Mm. and you have got staff that have never seen this before Mm. so you know what 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 do we need to do in terms of because it's the building blocks isn't it you know we don't just have to think about building blocks of learning with young people we have to think about building blocks with everybody yes how do you implement something and the stages that you need to go in through that to, to make it successful. Mm. So, yeah, I suppose that was one of the key things that um, I went down to Plymouth mm. with, that mindset. And so you moved towards your new trust. 
and assuming that you I mean just knowing you and knowing the way that you work bringing quite a lot of that wanting to work with people not tell them what to do um I I really see that in your practice and and you know recognize that to be something that's really important to you and it sounds like the structure that you're going into is going to support that but can you just tell us sort of as we wrap up can you just give us some ideas about some of the things that you are hoping to to bring that maybe come from some of those stories that you've talked about from some of those formative experiences or indeed from some of the other places that you've worked um that might relate to some of these topics of diversity or equity or inclusion yeah I mean um one thing that's um come through from talking to the heads is that you know like I've said before they've got energy and they really love to learn however it's not necessarily as coordinated and collegial as as it could be you know they they're very much they're doing their own things and doing incredible work in their own schools so one of the things i'd really love to bring to the table is like how can we pull that together and and, and really utilize each other's strengths and really that includes everybody within the school you know i think that often there's members of staff TAs is an example that that get left out of that equation and they're very skilled in what they do so bringing that to the table making sure that I'm hearing about everyone's talents Mm. and 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 doing that talent management work and then yeah really sort of um, looking at how we can coordinate it across the trust so that everybody gets the benefit of that and again like you say you know very important to work with all of the people, not just the heads, but senior leaders, teachers, teaching assistants. I want to be a visible part of the trust. Um, but balancing that, I'm very careful with balancing that of there's head teachers in each of these schools mm. and they're individual schools that deserve that respect. Um, I don't want to dilute that. I don't want to take that away from the head teacher. But I want to be a, a fundamental part of, of what the trust and the schools are about mm. and contribute to, to each one of the schools yeah. improvement. Yeah, listening and hearing and, and getting a feel in the first half term mm. um, and then really sort of making sure that everybody feels the communication. I always think communication plans are interesting because I think you should always follow up a communication plan with a comprehension plan mm. because you can communicate things and people don't actually understand it or hear it. So, again, want to make sure that we've got a really solid communication system across the trust, but everybody also comprehends that and understands that because they're part of it and they've mm. contributed to it. So, you know, that's that's my first initial thoughts mm. around it. I love that because that just links so nicely to what you're saying about the way that you learn, listening and then comprehending and how we comprehend and and bringing sense making into institutions as big as you know multi academy trusts, I think, is just so critical to, as you say, ensuring that people feel like they're part of something. Yeah. One person's one school can make sense of something in an entirely different way to another, but yeah. also one senior leader, one teaching assistant, one member of canteen staff can make sense of things in completely different ways. And so, yeah. I really love that you're bringing that into the into the heart of what you're doing. Yeah. Definitely. Sounds great. I'm also just really pleased to be talking to another female CEO of a multi-academy trust. And um, in terms of the way that this influences my work, and just to, you know, to reflect back to you, you're one of um, a growing handful of clients, a a bigger (laughs) handful of clients who are female CEOs of multi-academy trusts. And I was talking to um, to a client yesterday about how the narratives that 
that I'm I pri- I'm privileged to hear because I work with you are very similar often, but they are also remarkably diverse in terms of the way that as women you yeah. lead. And so I'm so delighted that we can be moving away from the idea that there's a kind of female leadership style and that all looks the same. And towards there are many women leaders who will lead very differently to perhaps some of the models we've seen of male leadership of of, of trusts. But those women will all lead really, really differently. That's that's exciting. And also that, you know, um, you can be a compassionate leader. And that isn't weak. That's yeah. that's the thing I think that, you know, I'm really, really forceful about. I think that, you know, um, a lot of the time leadership is like you've got to be assertive and mm. hardcore. And, you know, mm. and of course, you've got to deliver hard messages sometimes. There's no getting away from that. But there is absolutely a room for compassionate, empathetic leaders mm. that lead with through kindness mm. and, um, you know, still delivering the best and still expecting the best. And being very clear with that. Mm. Um, but messages can always be kind, can't they? So, mm. you know, um, I, I love how that's growing in our yeah. leadership as well. Very exciting. It's just great. I'm really thrilled. And I'm really, really excited about your your next chapter. And I'm really, um, really excited for your new trust, um, the the colleagues that you are going to be working with to get to know you. you because uh I've gotten to know you a small part, and I think you are a fantastic person and a fantastic leader and I would be really really pleased to be in your team so oh, thank good you, luck good thank luck you. and thank you. thank you for joining us on the Being Luminary podcast as ever our conversations go from here to there <laughs> and we don't know where they're going to go but I'm, I'm, it's really good to talk to you thanks Carla thank you Thank you for listening to the Being Luminary podcast. I would love to hear your thoughts on the podcast, so please do leave us a review. Each month, I will be picking one of our reviewers to get a free laser coaching session as a thank you. And remember, if you know a luminary or an everyday thought leader who would benefit from listening to this podcast or who would love to be featured on the cast, then please do share it with them. This episode was presented by me, Angie Brown. Original music is by Martin Ostwick. The series is edited by Big Tent Media and produced by Emily Crosby Media.